name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudetu Jesus Christus. This is Timothy Flanders with The Meaning of Catholic. I'm today joined by Dr. John Rao. Dr. Rao, how are you doing? I'm miserable. I'm miserable just <laughs> as everyone is miserable who knows that they're living through the greatest fraud in history, or two of the greatest frauds in history, should I say. One, the pandemic, and then the other one, this election. Yes, Dr. Rao has the misfortune of being a New Yorker under the uh, neuronic domination of de Blasio and Cuomo. So uh, I'm glad you're hanging and on. Cuomo, I'm glad you're still. Yes, I, it's I, the whole Julio Claudio uh, family that we've got to deal with. <laughs> yes, indeed, the, uh, the dynasty. Uh, well, Dr. Rao, <laughs> let me little, read a little bio. If no one knows who you are, Dr. Rao, you're about to find out that Dr. Rao <laughs> is a professor of history at St. John's University in New York, New York. He is the author of Black Legends, The Light of the World, The War of Words with the Incarnate Word. In addition to articles written by the Andalus and the Remnant and the other periodicals, he is also the director of the Roman Forum, originally founded by Dr. Dietrich von Hildermann. So these two works is what we'll be talking about. So we've got Black Legends, which is a rather thick piece of uh, church history uh, excellent work. And we also have Removing the Blindfold, the myth of 19th century, uh, what is the subtitle? 19th century Catholics and the myth of modern freedom. So we're going to be talking about the fires of revolution going into our 19th century. We're already experiencing the fires of our own revolution today. So we have a lot to learn from our fathers in the past. So um, any viewers who'd like to uh, benefit from Dr. Rao's work, you have it linked below in the show. In the show notes, uh, you can buy the buy these books. He also has a number of his writings online for free and his lectures. The entire, actually, the work, the entire work of Black Legends is for is free on uh, your website, Dr. Rao. So thank you for all your good work, Dr. Rao. Looking forward to talking on our topic. Um, before we get into the revolution, sort of 1776, 1789, the whole 19th century. I wanted to get your take about some of the background of the whole shift. You've done a lot of work on the influence of Luther and total depravity on the theories of church and state and society. And the one of the main um, timelines that's given by Belloc and it's repeated by Henry Sear is they really see the, the turning point in, in post-Tridentine history as the Thirty Years' War, where Urban the eighth, eighth and Richelieu sort of combined to make France side with the Protestants against Spain and the whole league. Um, do you see that also as sort of this turning point where everything kind of switches the advance of the counter reformation sort of is halted. Do you see that also as the turning point to really uh, jettison us all the way into this whole revolution that we're in? Do you see that as a turning point? Yes, on the practical level, indeed. And uh, of course, it, it begins that particular uh, role of France under Richelieu in this regard with his whole battle with the um, the party inside France, whose greatest inspiration was St. Vincent de Paul, which wanted 
France under its um, its uh, new dynasty, the Bourbon dynasty, uh, to dedicate itself to really doing what a Catholic monarchy ought to do for the benefit for the benefit of the common good, um, with a, a Catholic vision in mind, and the whole party of Saint Vincent de Paul, the Mariac family, um, a number of others thought by the late 1620s that they had actually uh, gained a position where they would be able to guide the country down that direction. And they they lost out in what's referred to as the day of dupes, where uh, it turned out that Richelieu was the one who had actually gained the upper hand. And then what that did is it, it turned the monarchy, the Bourbon monarchy in France away from being a reforming monarchy in a Catholic sense, dedicated to really what we would later on call Catholic social doctrine as being um, of primary importance for a Catholic ruler to just simply the search for practical, natural, political glory. And Richelieu made no bones about that. He was not against uh, Catholic reform for strengthening the backbone of the church as a, uh, a force for maintaining order inside France in a way that looks good um, in comparison to something that would be um, uh, floundering down some sort of uh, disorganized heretical direction, but it was only really for the service of the monarchy and for the service of political political goals. Yeah, that seems to be the important point to understand for advocates of the revolution, that there is this right. corruption into sort of a tyrant, uh, tyrannical anti-Catholic regime. Um, now, what about what I, I'm seeing with the, the growth of the Counter-Reformation and the spread of the Jesuits as this force of Catholicism. Now, you have uh, characterized, uh, I think this is the phrase from E. Michael Jones, as the, the Masons are the Whig black operation. Um, mm -hmm. Now, do the, do the Masons sort of function coming out of uh, the 1688 Union, the, the so-called Glorious Revolution, and later... Uh, are the Masons sort of anti-Jesuits? I mean, are they being sent out all over the place to foment sort of a radical rev revolution elsewhere and the status quo in the British Isles? Not, 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 not really. I mean, if you if you don't mind, if I could just mention a, a, a bit about what happened to turn what was basically a medieval guild, a builders' guild, into the kind of um, uh, political organization that became. If you don't mind my mentioning yes, just a little bit about the roots of that, uh, I mean the Masons were a, um, a, a perfectly respectable guild um, in Britain, but they were they were down at the heels uh, when they got into the 1600s and um, uh, the, into the into the 1600s, and they needed powerful and especially well-heeled patrons to keep going. And what happened is that. Uh, it became clear to different factions, uh, especially those factions that were uh, were uh, in favor of the Glorious Revolution or opposed to the Glorious Revolutions. In other words, the Jacobites having been driven from power in 1688, and then the Whigs as the ones who were gaining power. It became it became clear that uh, being able to utilize an already established network of lodges uh, of these 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 Masons, these this Masonic guild would be beneficial for them for political purposes. And there was a kind of run for the money um, to see who could get control of it. And it's the Whigs who were the ones who, who managed to do so. Uh, but the primary goal to begin with of the Whigs using the Masons was, was one that was focused on 
English matters in particular. And it did have obviously an, an, an anti-Catholic character to it, but it was mostly designed to protect the whole uh, vision, the whole Whig vision, which ties in with the uh, moderate enlightenment vision in particular of wanting to have not just a, um, a country that was ruled without any real uh, definitive religious guide that could trouble the various forces that, that, that made up the Whig uh, alliance, but they also didn't want any kind of strong monarch uh, that would behind, be behind the picture as well. But it was focused on, on those goals rather than anything specifically anti-Jesuit as such. More than that, it, it was anti-French. Uh, and as a result, what happened is that everybody that uh, on, the, on the continent of Europe Everybody who was worried about the possibility of Louis XIV dominating the continent, and that meant um, all, all kinds of different uh, uh, forces on the continent that included Catholic powers as well, like the Austrian Habsburgs, um, that, um, that uh, anybody who was worried about France and Louis XIV could be recruited or could be uh, subverted, you might say, into, into uh, linking up with the policies of, of, of this Masonic network. So it was designed to serve English foreign policy purposes more, more than uh, the anti-Jesuit, uh, uh, the, the idea of it being an anti-Jesuit front. Okay. Yeah, it seems to... But it was anti-Catholic. Certainly. Um, to what degree was the Whig Party in control of masonry. I know masonry is varied. There's some some even Catholic masons. To what degree is sort of the Whig party behind it all? Is it uh, are they controlling pulling the strings well, uh, of masonry? It's it's the same clientele. It's basically the same clientele. I mean there are many people who were part of the Whig movement in Britain who were not necessarily masons, but there's a great great connection uh, between those who are um, uh, involved in the whole Whig program and who are part of the whole Masonic program, there's a there's a there's a there's an interconnection there, and um, more than that, one could one could say it's it's the whole moderate Enlightenment program uh, that's represented by what uh, is referred to what are referred to as a, as the um, the physico theologians. Um, the people who were with John, with um, with uh, Isaac Newton, um, with the Royal Academy, uh, with John Locke as well. Uh, all of those people were people who intersected with uh, the Masons, with the with the Whigs, um, and were promoting this idea of the need to create an order of things, a socio political order of things, in which dogmatic religious forces represented by powerful churches, and that would include the Anglican Church as well as the Roman Catholic Church, would not be able to, uh, to, to uh, guide in some sort of definitive way political and social policy, and in which what you would do is you would promote what seems to be a religious outlook towards life in what you did was you saw the uh, proof of the existence of God demonstrated really through just simply probing the laws of nature that you were experimenting with scientifically, all of which could show, could be shown to fit together to create a, um, a, a universe that operated by God-given scientific laws, but didn't really need any kind of dogmatic, Bible, or papal-guided religious force 
uh, to show you what it was that needed to be done to follow what God wished properly. Um, it's this it's wishy-washy, mushy religion uh, that they thought was sufficient to fight off atheism and prevent them from being dominated by any kind of uh, powerful, uh, powerful structured religious force tied together with some powerful monarch, which they also did not want. And then this, this was what was then by Voltaire and brought to the continent. Voltaire is one of the main promoters of the whole moderate, Whiggish, uh, Masonic vision of things on the European continent. Okay. Now, I want to ask you the role of Masonry once we get into the later the revolutions. But before I do that, I want to ask you before. Um, now, does Luther make the revolution inevitable? with his total depravity and everything, or could the conceivably, could their, could the early Protestants vision of things still have somewhat of a Christian society? No. Oh, I think it's just very out. Uh, I mean, immediately after Luther visited the, um, uh, when he met up with, uh, with, with, uh, and the Charles, uh, and then was condemned by the Emperor Charles. As you know, what happened is that he went into a kind of protected hiding for a short time. And uh, in that period, which didn't last all that long, what happened is that uh, immediately back in, um, in, in, uh, in, in his home, uh, what happened is that uh, people drew the radical conclusions. They drew all the radical conclusions of, of his ideas. And he, learning about this, then uh, left his protected custody and then went back home in order to try to crush the radicals. But his way of crushing the radicals was simply by means of asserting his willful vision of what it is that Protestantism meant, and then having that protected by working together as an ally of uh, the local political forces or whatever political forces would link up with him, which he then proclaimed to become, uh, this is his very phrase, necessary bishops. The local political force that he was operating with and then others who would follow after him and impose his particular willful vision of Protestantism had to do so by recruiting the local political forces as quote unquote necessary bishops uh, to work in tandem with, uh, so that it was a necessary sellout to uh, to uh, whatever it is that these local political forces would demand in return in order to impose his view of Protestantism. And then radical forces that refused to go along with Luther recognized that what they had to do is either um, link up with similar political forces that would support their particular willful vision of things, um, or try to create, as in Calvin's case, a whole new uh, theocratic vision of what it is that Christianity was all about. But they ultimately are all of them um, emphasizing this willful imposition of a particular uh, uh, understanding of Christianity, which then breaks up very, very swiftly into, well, within Luther's own life, lifetime, hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of interpretations. There, there's no way when you adopt Luther's view, which involves abandonment of 
um, of not only the structured church based upon the tradition, uh, which he rips apart uh, and admits that he rips apart, and it says he's proud to rip apart in order to impose what his own particular uh, viewpoint is. There's no way that you can get around that and then also his abandonment of reason and not have the whole revolutionary position uh, right there in front of you from the from the get-go. Right. So what I'm there's hearing you say is that... There's say things that he does not want. He's, he, Luther is, in one sense, the model conservative because there's things he does not like um, that he will not allow uh, that he views as too radical but he cuts out all the ground for defending um, his position except will, um, willpower. And if you want to leap forward to the whole American situation, it's like the reference by conservatives to the will of the founding fathers. Well, what do I care about the will of the founding fathers if it's not based on faith and reason? Um, the will becomes the, 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 the guiding principle, the triumph of the will. Right. So it's this uh, Marsilius of Padua voluntarist imposition of arbitrary power in either case, whether it's Luther, radical revolutions. So we fast forward to. Exactly. <clears throat> okay. So we fast forward to America and France and then into the 19th century. Now, what is the role of Freemasonry here? Is it pretty much behind everything, all the revolutions in, uh, we've got Mexico later, we've got South, South America, all over Europe. I mean, is, is masonry at the, at, at the front lines of this whole revolutionary movement? No, I mean, it's, it plays, it plays a role. It plays a role. And at times it plays a role, which is crucial in uh, being able to jumpstart the whole thing. But uh, for instance, with, re with respect to the French Revolution, uh, a couple of good, uh, good books that are, uh, are, are very, very valuable for understanding what happened in France. One is called The Religious Roots of the French, uh, The Religious Origins of the French Revolution. It's a superb book. The other one is a book called The Desacralization of the French Monarchy in the 18th Century. And um, there's already a lot of rot that's brought there, uh, making uh, a uh, making for a, um, uh, a you know a, a, a real chance to to destroy not just the monarchy but the Catholic order of things due to this terrible Jesuit Jansenist battle in France in the 18th century, um, and that is really what's what's uh, uh, the, um, the 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 thesis of the uh, religious origins of the French Revolution, and it also plays a great role in the question of the desacralization of the monarchy. So there's a lot of rot there. There's a lot of rot there. There's also um, the problem, and this is a, a problem separate from anything involving Freemasonry as such, that in the Catholic world, there was a misunderstanding of what was happening in England with people like um, Isaac Newton and John Locke and what is referred to by historians as the moderate enlightenment, there was a lot of misunderstanding and belief that uh, what these people were talking about was the answer to what historians call the radical enlightenment and the atheism of the radical enlightenment represented by people like uh, Spinoza. Um, because what the moderates 
and this involves these so-called uh, uh, physical theologians that were connected with, with Newton and then Boyle and the people surrounding the Royal Academy, and that Locke was, was in a sense, uh, uh, a, 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 um, a major, Locke was a major figure in their whole vision of things. Uh, their argument was that the way to fight atheism was to back off of fighting over dogmatic issues and fighting over the imposition of one particular uh, religious structure uh, because of the fact that what that did in the peculiar circumstances of the 17th and 18th century was it, it caused inner Christian fighting. And out of this, therefore, only the, only the atheists could gain. And those arguments had a huge influence in the Catholic Church in the 18th century. Um, they had a huge influence among Catholic bishops. They had a huge influence among um, monarchs uh, who were advised by Catholic bishops and by Catholic, uh, Catholic um, religious orders. The Jesuits themselves were very much influenced by it. And what a lot of people don't know is that Voltaire, Voltaire had gone off to uh, escape um, troubles with certain very powerful noblemen in France in the early 1700s. He's gone off to England and, um, and he became enamored of the whole Lockean, uh, Newtonian, Royal Academy vision of things. And when he came back to France, he dedicated himself to spreading it. And in the 1730s and in the 1740s, Voltaire, um, he posed as a defender of Christianity and was viewed as being such by Catholic leaders in France, including um, uh, Pope Benedict XIV, who uh, was very fond of Voltaire and looked upon him as being a defender of the Catholic faith, whereas what he was doing was he was defending this whole viewpoint, which, as I mentioned a minute ago, was something that was also promoted by uh, the Freemasons, who were part of the whole Whig establishment vision of things as well. Um, it's only later, after 1748, that Voltaire comes out of the closet as really not being a Christian, but a deist. And a deist who was veering more and more into uh, doubting even the idea of a creator God. He never really gives that up entirely. But it's not really until the 1750s that Voltaire uh, becomes identified by people who had thought that he was a defender of the Christian vision of things as, a, as an enemy. And it really is um, his own doing that uh, brings this out because he, he, he comes out swinging um, defending various causes that put him at odds with people that uh, thought that he was their friend uh, earlier on. So there's, there's all kinds of stuff that is done by, even with the aid of the papacy, because a lot of these thinkers were brought into positions of importance in the intellectual world in Rome, um, and all over the Catholic world through, uh, through the influence of uh, Benedictine intellectuals, Jesuit intellectuals, Augustinian intellectuals, all kinds of different uh, groups. They, 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 um, they uh, ate away at the idea that there ought to be um, a real um, a commitment to promoting the whole dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church. The, the idea is this practical Christianity 
promoted even through the Catholic world, the, the, the sort of, you know, poor Richard's almanac version of Christianity, that what you do is you emphasize moral, um, moral principles that demonstrate that uh, Catholic Christianity uh, really is a good friend of political and social order, which tends to reduce it to a mundane level of early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And 19th century Catholic um, reformers had to rediscover um, and reemphasize the whole um, the whole dogmatic character that lies behind anything which is um, uh, morally valuable in Catholicism as well. On the other hand, to go back to your question about the Masons as such, the network that the, that the Masons created was something which is very valuable because um, mentioning, as I did before, that there were lots of enemies of Bourbon France that were recruited to become part of the whole Masonic structure of things as a means of being able to, um, to, um, to bring into the anti-French alliance, people of importance in the service of uh, the Habsburg monarchy, for example, in, in Austria, um, and then noblemen who would be people of great influence and uh, uh, could, could, could aid pursuing uh, a consistent anti-French policy. Masonry spread through all of the Habsburg realms in, um, in, in Austria, through the course of the um, the wars against uh, uh, Louis the Fourteenth, and then they continued to grow after those wars were over as well. And then what also ended up happening was that masonry uh, spreads through uh, Spain and Spanish Habsburg. Well, it wasn't Habsburg by that time; it was Bourbon, Spanish Bourbon um, territories. It spreads through them, and it spreads through Portugal as well. Uh, in the course of the uh, the 1750s and 60s, uh, in particular, because of the fact that all of the Catholic monarchies uh, were 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 uh, very much frightened by and impressed by how much they saw the Protestant nations of Britain and Prussia uh, by dedicating themselves to the kinds of projects of non-dogmatic religion. Uh, that Britain and then Prussia as well were dedicating themselves to. They saw how victorious they were, how much success they were having economically, and then in wars like the War of the Austrian Succession and then the Seven Years' War, and they felt that they had to pursue these policies in order to survive. And insofar as you pursue the policies of the modern enlightenment that focus on trying to back away from non-dogmatic religion, trying to focus on science and a science that was touted as being ultimately not anti-religious, uh, anti-atheist, um, and um, uh, but not, not, not pro-dogmatic Christianity. Uh, as much as you produce, as you pr pursue those kinds of goals, you're going to end up promoting or um, allowing Masonic, uh, the Masonic network to spread as well, because it looks like it's friendly to religion uh, in, this, in this period of time. Uh, so it spread all over the place. And there was a side effect that this had that aided radicals, even though uh, the, um, the whole Whig moderate enlightenment approach did not want to aid radicals. Because uh, in the early days in particular, let's say in the, uh, the, uh, 
uh, the the later part of the 16 in the 1690s and then in the first part of the 1700s when you were recruiting everybody you could in an anti-French alliance and that continued because as you as you you probably know um, the um, the uh, the uh, flight of James II to France uh, meant that the family the Stuart family uh, maintained its residence in France, and there were a number of occasions in the uh, in the uh, the period after the death of Louis the Fourteenth that it looked like they might be able to come back and take over. So the anti-French alliance was was maintained. The Whig, more moderate Masonic forces to uh, recruit anti-French elements, allowed in these Masonic circles on the continent all sorts of more radical elements to link up with the Masonic groups as well. Because people like Spinoza in Holland and all of the radical supporters of Spinoza, they were also anti-French Bourbon. They were anti-Catholic, but they were also anti-Bourbon monarchy because of it being an absolute monarchy that had uh, caused problems for people of their viewpoints as well. So the moderate Whig Masonic forces allowed anti-French, anti-Catholic, more radical forces to enter into the Masonic circles. And you get these situations where the moderates seem like they are trying to utilize the radicals, but the radicals are in there trying to utilize it for manipulating the moderates for their own purposes as well. Um, there was a scare that really um, caused a, um, uh, a, uh, a, kind of, a kind of reaction, a, a very serious reaction in the Germanic Masonic circles uh, after the 1770s uh, because of the fact that it was discovered, uh, this is not, you know, conspiratorial theory or whatever. This is, uh, you know, everybody, everybody, every historian knows this, that there was this one segment of the Masonic movement called the Illuminati um, that had its, its, center, its center in Bavaria. And um, it spread out in the German world in particular. And it was discovered by the various states in the many, many states of the German world after um, in the late 1770s that the so-called Illuminati force um, really had um, a revolutionary program that went beyond anything that any moderate force would, would be after. So there's a, a, a something, something of a backing away from the Masons in the Germanic world. Um, in the 1780s in, in particular. Um, in, in France, uh, the, the, the role that Masons played was something which I think um, is, is important in the initial stage of the um, calling of the Estates General uh, because of the fact that uh, when the Estates General was called uh, and then there were the elections held, uh, the, 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 uh, the various, uh, the various estates were supposed to, they were, they were, they were told that what they sh should do is they should solicit these, these, um, these, uh, statements of what was deemed necessary for the monarchy to do, to deal with its particular problems. And as you know, the calling of the estates general was one that was, uh, was, 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 uh, very much focused in this recognition on the part of the French monarchy that it, it was bankrupt. It, it could not tap into the tax money it needed to survive. 
and it needed to find a way to get more money to support the army in order to allow France to maintain its role as a uh, as a, a major power in Europe. But the monarchy said that all of the various uh, the, the various communes of France and then the various um, noble families in France, the various clerical groups in France, that they could they could and they were they were they were encouraged to to send these statements of what they thought needed to be done. They're called the cahier. Um, and in the French National Library, they're all collected. I mean, there there's thousands and thousands of these cahiers. Um, and when you look at them, you can see that really what's of uh, most concern uh, to the the, 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 the the average Frenchman are, are, are various very practical things, but they did not know. The average uh, uh, producer of a cahier did not know how to actually shape it, how to form it. You needed to have some sort of structure. Uh, you need a guideline. And what is clear is that there was a kind of um, uh, sort of basic cahier structure that was put together uh, by uh, at least one of the most important of the um, of the uh, French Masonic uh, lodges. I forget the name of it, the Three Sisters Lodge. Or I can't remember what the name of it was, but there was a basic structure for plunking in your particulars um, to be then presented to the Estates General that then framed it in terms of this language, this, this language of, of, um, of uh, a call for changes which, which, which fit what it is that the moderate Whiggish, moderate Enlightenment Masonic forces would want. But even that got hijacked very quickly on by more radical forces because of the fact that um, uh, more radical-minded forces that were not really in line with the with the program, you know, with the with the moderate Enlightenment Whiggish program. What they ended up doing is they ended up uh, when the Estates General met, uh, phrasing things in term in terms of a of a call for uh, a, a general uh, uh, universal democratic uh, call for the rights of man the world over to be the framework for discussing what needed to be done. And that's a different phenomenon. I mean, if you look at, for example, the, um, the, the Glorious Revolution and then the American Revolution, uh, the idea there uh, is something which fits in more with the more moderate Masonic um, Whiggish thing. And it, it's, it's a reference to historical phenomenon. These are the rights of Englishmen. These are the thwarted rights of Americans. Uh, this is the framework in which what you want to do is discuss uh, how you can bring about the changes that you would like. But once you get an appeal to a universal rights of man, like the Declaration of the Rights of Man, you're, you're beyond the Whiggish Masonic program into something which is which is is broader. I, I hope I'm not babbling too much. Yeah, no, that, that's great. That was thing, that was right along with. <clears throat> right along with one of the questions I was going to ask, which is the difference between American and French revolutions. But be before I do that, you touched on a very important matter, which is economics. Um, it is often focused that there, a lot of historians just sort of only focused on political machinations or political ideas. But what is the role of economics during this period 
the turn into the 1800s, there's economic revolution. What is that role to play in the revolution at large? Big, <laughs> very big. But again, not it's not the sole role, um, because I mean that's that's where when when one when one uh, just talks about economics being uh, the cause of everything, you 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 get into the materialist argument of things, which is you, you know I mean the capitalist Marxist materialism. It's 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 both, but it is big. The economic role is big in the 18th century. For example, with the Whig alliance, because uh, the force that brings about the glorious revolution is an alliance of forces, and it does involve uh, this this uh, this segment of Protestant opinion, Protestant belief, I should say, not opinion, but Protestant belief, which is which is broadly what is referred to as Pietist in character. Um, there are a lot of Protestants who, in the uh, in the late 17th century, horrified by what had happened in the Civil War period, uh, were won over to the form of Protestantism, which has its roots partly in Britain, partly in Holland, partly in Prussia, which is called Pietist in character, which which is is very much believing Christian, but which emphasizes this idea about the need to back away from um, a dogmatic uh, uh, Christian emphasis in order to focus on Christianity as being a religion of uh, of, of pious morality, uh, which every Christian uh, knows the value of and needs no sort of dogmatic, fundamental uh, um, uh, church-backed teachings to be able to profess. And they were very much seriously, I think erroneously, but seriously concerned that uh, internecine Christian battling only aided Spinozan atheism. And they didn't want this kind of battling from the Civil War to continue in the Restoration period. They were very worried about its continuity. They were very worried about um, the, um, the Catholicism of James II uh, aiding a, um, a, a, uh, a stoking of the fires, the doctrinal fires. And so they were eager to support the development of some kind of uh, political, socio-political system in Britain, which then carries over into the American Revolution, that would allow for religious toleration or religious freedom, to use the uh, the, the the American term there. And they're 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 not a negligible force in terms of the whole Anglo-American uh, revolutionary scheme of things. They they want to the, to create a um, uh, a, uh, a framework for a, a religious-minded community in England and then in the United States uh, that will uh, will will uh, not give any kind of scope for for religious warfare that they believe can only aid the atheists. On the other hand, what they do is uh, they create this this um, uh, this reign of religious tolerance, whose great spokesman is John Locke. Uh, which, as uh, as Voltaire and then James Madison um, understood, allowed for so many religious forces to be tolerated that they all checked and balanced one another out of the picture, so that religion really couldn't become any kind of uh, any kind of um, determinant force 
because you couldn't get a single spokesman. Voltaire says, when you have one religion, you have tyranny. When you have two religions, you have religious warfare. When you have a thousand, none of them can have any kind of impact. And religion will just be a kind of, you know, Santa Claus religion. I mean, to leap ahead um, into, into the future, which is on my mind because now, especially given the, the latest uh, situation, when you pass by Macy's in New York, Macy's has a big sign uh, over the whole store that says, believe. Believe what? No, just believe. And then it's, <laughs> it's specified more by saying, believe in Santa. I'm, I'm literally, this is true. Believe in Santa, believe in love, and believe in equality. Um, but you're believing. You know, you're not atheist. You're believing in something. So that's that. But then there is, as part of the Whig Alliance, a major part of the Whig Alliance in the Glorious Revolution, and then very much there in the American Revolution, the men of property, the men of property, the men of uh, property, primarily at the time landed property, but uh, in the Glorious Revolution, but in the American Revolution, both landed property and then merchant property because of the difference of the Southern planters and then the, uh, the New England merchants. And these are people who are very happy to go along with the religious tolerance argument because they see this as a means of getting religious forces uh, butting out of any interference in their property and what they do with their property, which they didn't want um, uh, to, to, to continue. But these were people who also wanted to have a weak government. They wanted to have a weak government that looked like it was, um, it was not uh, going to have a chance uh, if the Stuart liking of uh, the Bourbon model because both Charles II and James II were friendly with, with Louis XIV, uh, were uh, to win out. And, um, and then, of course, uh, with the American, uh, the American men of property, the, the fear that um, the continued strength of the British monarchy in terms of uh, making certain uh, demands upon, upon uh, how they could and could not use or what, what kind of taxes that they had to pay, uh, that that uh, this was something that they wished to be controlled. So the men of property are a very important part of the Glorious Revolution Alliance, the Whig Alliance, and they're a very important and even more important part of the um, the American Revolutionary Alliance. Um, in fact, the economic forces are much more important in many respects in the um, in the American. Uh, uh, a revolutionary alliance because of the fact that uh, the hold religiously um, uh, in the United States was something which was was much more tenuous than in Britain in the late 1600s and early 1700s. It was it was going to get a run for the money, the um, the money uh, influence in the United States because of the of the Great Awakening. Um, the American Great Awakening at the, at the time of the American Revolution and then also later is going to make for a much more religious 19th century in America than it was in the late 18th century. But both of these forces economically are hugely important and uh, they can look as though they're not a danger for religion insofar as religion um, is something that uh, is going to be uh, equated with supporting religious tolerance, um, in the American scheme of things, a number of the, um, the, the the sort of more charismatic Great Awakening type religious forces 
were uh, eager to work together with religious tolerance principles, uh, pe people like the Presbyterians and the Baptists, because of the fact that there was this hold of established religious forces in the U.S. through the Anglican churches and the Congregationalist churches that they wanted to break away from. So they they go along with this, but um, but it's 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 very great, and there's a, a, a really a kind of veto power of the property, the men of property. Uh, who are part of these different glorious reliance, uh, glorious revolution, American revolution forces on, on what a religion can and cannot do um, that is going to have to be, um, have to be uh, sort of modified, m modified might be the word to use. It, it has to be uh, finessed uh, to deal with the stronger religious forces that come up in the United States in the 19th century um, and, and will be finessed. Um, in order to be able to maintain a, um, a, a control over things. Now, there's many Catholic thinkers, and we're certainly thinking about this today regarding America. Many Catholic thinkers, as you have written about, have attempted to reconcile the Catholic faith with America and the American system, um, often with the argument that the American system is fundamentally different than the French Revolution. The French Revolution is one thing. American Revolution is entirely different. Uh, can you tell us, in terms of the fundamental principles of society and the influence of religion and, and everything that you're getting at, what are is there a fundamental difference between these two revolutions? If so, what is it? Well, I mean, I, it's a it's a, a question of um, logic, I think, more than anything else, because of the fact. Let, let's just take the main thinker um, with the whole Anglo-American revolutionary thing. That's John Locke. That's not people will sometimes bring up Montesquieu uh, because he plays a role uh, in um, in uh, expressing a similar type of view as the uh, the, the Whigs. Uh, are in England and France later on, but John Locke is the key figure. John Locke is the key figure. And John Locke is a problematic um, thinker. Um, and I think his problem, and the problem that he he, he then uh, incarnates in the whole uh, Anglo-American Whig and then American revolutionary uh, scheme of things is, um, is, is, is one which really describes the whole difficulty that conservatives have in fending off more re revolutionary thought quite clearly. Um, now, uh, there's, there's, there's John Locke, the practical politician, and then there's John Locke, the philosopher. And unfortunately, the two of them go together. Now, John Locke, the philosopher, is a man who what does he do? Well, to quote an Italian uh, um, friend of mine, Italian professor, professorial friend of mine, when asked what's wrong with John Locke, um, his comment very simple. He said, John Locke reduces everything to the individual and then he destroys the individual. Um, what does he mean he reduces everything to the individual? Well, John Locke's philosophy has no room for anything other than the individual. Um, there is no order of things um, that is composed of anything other than individual bits. He's a nominalist, John Locke. He's a nominalist. Um, there's nothing but individual bits of knowledge, 
There's nothing but individuals when you're talking about how human beings enter into the whole picture. And what does John Locke say about the individual? The individual is, to use his most famous phrase, a tabula rasa. Um, when the individual is born, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's no natural law uh, written into him. Um, what the individual is, is just a being subject to material stimuli upon him. Um, and so the individual is created by having um, uh, uh, material, natural stimuli upon him. In other words, the need for food, the need for sex, the need for whatever it is that comes in from the natural world. And then um, his responses to these stimuli coming from the outside, which um, in order to be able to be satisfied, require, and this is crucial to John Locke's thought, property to be able to um, to be able to, uh, uh, sat again, satisfy. So the individual, and this is where my friend says, uh, John Locke reduces everything to the individual and then destroys the individual. There's no spiritual influences really over the individual in Locke. There's no intellectual influences. It's all material influences. And then what you do is you create yourself as a personality in responding to these material influences. And really, intellect and spirit for John Locke is just something in a kind of Marxist way. Um, the, if you want to uh, you want to uh, sort of uh, fast um, speed forward to something else, um, it's only something that that is built up in order to explain what it is that the individual uh, is is thinking about himself and um, and uh, presenting to the world to justify what it what it is that he needs to do in order to satisfy these 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 uh, material stimuli upon him. So that you know to uh, again fast forward to our own day, each individual creates himself as a personality in responding to natural material stimuli on him and then satisfying those natural stimuli upon him and getting the property that he needs in order to be able to uh, in order to be able to uh, uh, really build that personality fully. And I think it, it all, um, and I'm, I'm right at the moment talking on the, the philosophical level and the intellectual level, we'll get to the practical level in a minute, it all fast forwards ultimately to Justice Kennedy's statement um, in um, and I forget what the, the the case was, where he said that every American has the right to create his own reality. Um, that's Locke. All that is is Locke. Every American responding to the material stimuli upon him creates his personality and then gets the property that he needs to be able to um, to to fulfill it. And this is why they have no ability, really, ultimately, logically, to be able to answer why it is I cannot be a homosexual, why it is I cannot be transgender, why it is I cannot be transhumanist, why it is I can't be post-humanist, there is no way to answer that except one. And it goes all the way back to Luther again. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it, and therefore I'm not going to allow it. And that's where you get into uh, what uh, the house that Locke builds and uh, and then uh, offers to the Whig glorious revolution 
in uh, on a practical level uh, politically and what the uh, American founding does and what American conservatives do. Because what they ultimately say is um, when you bring up the fact that logically it creates this radical um, environment, this radical uh, the possibility for a radical environment, they simply say, well, that's not what the founders wanted. That's not what they willed. And Locke uh, was, remember, Locke was a physician. He was a philosopher, but he was the secretary. He was the political secretary for the leader of the Whig uh, alliance uh, that created the Glorious Revolution. And he's a practical political man. And his vision involves property and the importance of property. And therefore, he's obviously somebody who um, who uh, understands and wants to promote the protection of property on the part of the, the current uh, power forces in, in, in terms of property in, in Britain. Um, and he's a man who doesn't want dogmatic religion um, to some to ride roughshod over the creation of personality, which is something built upon responding to materialist stimuli, and hence his religious tolerance um, uh, argument as well. Um, so what he does is he creates an argument about what it is that's needed to build the political system in late 17th century, um, early late 17th century uh, England of the Glorious Revolution that would defend um, uh, uh, a society that would protect property to achieve the sorts of goals that he thinks are important philosophically. And what you've got to do um, to do that is you can't allow all of these elements that uh, went wacko during the English Civil War, uh, Civil War that are obsessed with religious questions um, or who were uh, because there were all sorts of people involved in the English Civil War, like the levelers who envisaged a communist society uh, coming into being. You can't allow any of these lunatics to come onto the scene because they'll create a world that's wrapped around all of this nonsense, uh, 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 dogmatic religious stuff or uh, dreams of no property, which will not allow people to build themselves up as individuals. So where do you get the kind of a society that you need that will protect this stuff? Well, you see that in English history, there's a class of propertied, sensible, commonsensical people who know how to be moderate. And these are the ones that you have to entrust the society to. So you create a system of government with checks and balances that allows a state to really not be able to do much of anything that can interfere with the property people who are the ones who are hard-nosed, down-to-earth, not going to be um, uh, raptured up into some sort of uh, religious war and see that property is what counts. It's the same thing in the American Revolution. It's exactly the same thing um, that, 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 that's at stake over there. Um, and what you do is you try to create a system uh, that will not allow uh, any anybody that uh, somehow is uh, you know shooting up into these uh, intellectual, spiritual, platonic realms or um, into any kind of um, uh, uh, well, to, to use more modern terms, communist realms to interfere um, with things. And Madison, you know, says this outrightly in the Federalist Papers. Um, when you're when he's defending the Constitution, he he makes it clear 
that the system of government that's been created is a system of government that is designed to allow the established powers that be, which are the property people, to have their way. And he says that um, if, if it looks as though it's going down a direction um, where, where changes could be made, um, what ends up ha- what what what's ha- what the the constitutional system that's been created does is through its checking and balancing and its uh, various uh, very individualist uh, aspects, he says it multiplies factions. It multiplies factions, and by multiplying factions, what you get is the same effect as Voltaire recognized and Madison himself recognized with religious tolerance. The more factions that you get, the more you have people who look like they have the freedom to be able to promote some specific goal, but are basically banging their heads against one another and never get anywhere, never get anywhere. And this allows the established forces to continue in power. But I would argue that that's not really ultimately what does happen because, yes, it is true that the established property people are able to maintain a position, but um, in the system that uh, his Locke's philosophy creates um, and that the uh, Anglo-American system creates, it does allow for this constant pressure of individual freedom, individual freedom, individual freedom to push and push and push and push until you do have to have a compromise made where the property people are recognizing that, well, you know, maybe in, in, 17, in 1688 or in 1787, they wouldn't have allowed gay marriage, but where they've got to allow that to happen, so long as the promoters of gay marriage or transgenderism um, recognize that what they've got to do is they've got to devote their energies to making money and getting property and uh, and establishing, you know, big, big, uh, you know, um, McMansions for their transgender family. Uh, you know, right. uh, it, it, it radicalizes, but in a, in a step-by-step fashion that, um, that, that uh, it's a nice, to use Frank Sinatra, nice and easy does it. You know, nice and easy does it. Whereas the French revolutionary method, what it does is it it throws everything in your face so that you have a reaction, which is which is with the radicals something they can't resist. I mean, I'm it's one of the things that I'm hoping uh, that with this current madness with the within the I mean the Democratic Party, uh, I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi and uh, the wackos. Um, that they have uh, uh, promoted. I mean, a Nancy Pelosi doesn't want the the wackos to win out, but they've created a situation where the wackos are going to force them um, to go down their direction. And if they do it very, very quickly, it could just simply aid um, the 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 uh, reaction to the whole of this um, idiotic idiotic. Uh, um, uh, alliance that that those maniacs have allowed to take over their their party. Yeah, oh, that was no. a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I, I hope you. you still have any. I hope you still have viewers. Yeah, yes. yeah. Well, no, this is all very good. And there's one force we haven't addressed, and that is the Jews, who are another force in the 19th century that begin to exert influence on society, uh-huh. which begins to create a reaction where there is this proliferation of literature 
focusing on what they call the Jewish question, which Civilta Catholica does, in fact, uh, weigh in on later on in 1890, which has recently been republished. So can you tell us about what is what is happening with the Jewish question? How do the how does the church respond to that and how are we to take that? Um, well, you know, let me um, let me um, since you since you bring this up, let, let me um, start off with a, a citation from Mike Jones, you know, from Mike Jones and uh, uh, his book on this subject. And it's the um, it's the phrase that he 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 brings up in order uh, also to clarify his own position. Uh, the complaint of Jews in the 20th century that the Trotskys caused the problems and the Bronsteins pay for it. You know, in other words, in other words, you get um, forces that are um, that are uh, secularized, uh, naturalist, um, Jewish in background um, that are wreaking havoc. And then what ends up happening is that the the blame is placed on the particular, um, uh, you know, ethnic group. Uh, or in, in 19th century terms, because remember in 19th century and all the way down to the end of the Second World War, and now it's back in the game again, uh, the term race was used to describe uh, ethnic groups um, uh, or blood groups of a much more varied sort than, than, than uh, was uh, the dominant uh, way of using the, the word race from 1945 until fairly recently. Now everybody talks like Hitler again. You know, when you talk about um, races, there's 5,000 races. And, uh, and, and when you fill out a form, you got to decide which of these many races you're part of. I mean, it's ridiculous. All right, so, so, so let me go back to the question in that regard. Right. There's, you know, obviously, obviously there's 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 um, there's been a um, uh, th there's been all kinds of discussions of the role of Jews within Christian societies through the Middle Ages and, 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 and uh, into later times. I, I and, and here, too, Mike Jones points this out. Uh, it's interesting, though, that it's the Catholic Church that does not have a problem in terms of any kind of ethnic or so-called pseudo-racial um, or um, religious terms with respect to conversions of people. All of this, all of this, um, this anti-Semitic stuff of a, of a dangerous sort is something that you can find in the mouths of Renaissance thinkers in the, in the, in the 15th and 16th century, particularly comes up um, with this, um, with this, uh, uh, a famous battle just before Luther called the Reutlandstreit, um, in which what happened is that it was a Jewish convert who had become a priest who brought up the fact that Renaissance thinkers were using all sorts of esoteric texts, um, esoteric um, uh, Talmudic texts and Kabbalistic texts um, for promoting ideas which were dangerous, especially the, the Kabbalistic texts, not only the Catholic viewpoint, but to a believing, a believing Orthodox Jewish uh, standpoint as well. It was the, 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 the harbingers of the revolution who were the ones who were, um, who were playing around with things um, in a dangerous way and who were attacking people who happened to be of Jewish background, but who had correct ideas 
And in this particular case, I'm, I'm citing with the Reutland Strait, a man who became a, a Catholic priest, they're the ones who end up bringing up things that are anti-Semitic in character. All right, so now going down through into the, into the, um, into the 19th century and into the, the 20th century, you've got what, what takes place in the 19th century um, is, again, the, a battle within the Jewish world, just like within the Christian world. And what you get are people within the Jewish world who are eager uh, to, uh, to live a, a secularized life, a naturalized, um, secularized life, and who are thrilled with the idea that you're going to have religious toleration, um, you're going to live within either the Anglo-American scheme of things or um, then uh, more, more often than not the, the, the translation of this um, in 19th century Europe through liberal governments in the, in, uh, in, uh, continuing up through until the, the, the First World War, and therefore are promoting the same kinds of goals that we've been talking about up till now, all right? And they just happen to be Jews promoting those same kinds of goals. Um, you get then also, uh, given the fact that one of the consequences of the revolution and um, and uh, the um, the various ways in which the revolution plays itself out in terms of emphasizing one kind of natural um, uh, key to understanding how life ought to be organized as opposed to another, uh, you get uh, the influence of democratic nationalism in 19th century Europe, which argues that the whole world has to be divided up into unified independent um, nation states, which as the 19th century moves along, ends up becoming more and more tied with the idea of specific um, ethnic and ethnic racial blood groups that have to be unified uh, and then uh, democratically organized and living in the same place. And in this context of things, it's inevitable that given the fact that there are Jews scattered all over uh, Europe and other places that you get a Jewish question that comes up in democratic nationalist minds or in racial um, uh, nationalist minds about what what are the Jews? Are they part of the Poles or the Italians or the Germans or the French or are they a different ethnic race? And then you're going to get a Jewish democratic nationalist um, uh, ethnic racial force that comes up with Zionism. All right, so you're going to get a secularized group of Jews who are eager to operate in a secularized world. You're going to get a Zionist set of Jews who are secularists in character and who want to create a Jewish ethnic racial nation state. And then you're going to get Orthodox Jews, you know, who are um, not interested in either of these particular viewpoints. They're generally poor people. Um, and generally living in the Russian Empire or parts of the uh, uh, parts of Austria-Hungary more than, than than anywhere else, who, um, when they run into troubles in the later part of the 19th century, in Russia, in particular, are going to migrate in large numbers um, into uh, points westward, uh, and then to the United States as well, uh, and who are going to, you know. By uh, by people who are outside of the whole Jewish scheme of things, 
look like an invading army um, that might be, depending upon what is of particular concern to you, uh, look like they're supporting whatever it is that secularized Jews might happen to be supporting or what Zionists might happen to be supporting when they might not have any interest in either of them. You know? Now, to go back to um, the particular case of the secularized the secularized natural, naturalist-minded Jews of the 19th century before the Zionists become uh, particularly important, um, you know, a, a, a good number of, of these are people who become active, uh, or I shouldn't say, good, well, I mean, a good number of those from the secularized naturalist group that are not interested in Zionism, uh, although one or two of them do, do become interested in Zionism, um, the ones who are important in that group uh, are very much going to uh, have an importance within the whole 19th century industrial capitalist world. And as a result, be people who are active in um, the big money that's being made in the Industrial Revolution um, and, um, and, um, and uh, therefore are going to uh, be looked upon as being dangerous from the standpoint of critics of what it is, what kind of havoc is being wreaked by, uh, by that particular world. Um, and in this respect, I mean, quite frankly, uh, yes, I mean, there is, there is uh, let's say, among Jewish secularized naturalist capitalists, there is a certain tribal phenomenon, you know, where you you aid people that come from your own background. But quite frankly, there's the same outlook, there's the same kind of approach among the Anglo-Saxons. You know, the Anglo-Saxon sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, college tie mentality, you can see that play playing out in the, um, in the American world um, or in the British world as well. So there's a sort of tribal thing that partly Anglo-Saxon, partly Jewish. It even plays out among Irish when Irish end up playing a role. The only people who seem to not have any kind of great success in that regard are my own people, the Italians, who can't seem to ever um, act in any way that, uh, that that helps fellow Italians. But uh, there is a there is a you know there is a target that can be created there, um, and um, you can see different different. Um, different ways in which these targets are identified by enemies of of the um, the, um, uh, the the sort of capitalist establishment in Dickens. I mean, Dickens has got all sorts of you know the capitalist forces that are the danger people, and some of them are Anglo-Saxon, obviously very much Anglo-Saxon. Some of them appear Jewish in character. Some of them appear Jewish in character. Um, on the continent, a lot of the um, anti-Jewish, um, anti-capitalist um, uh, uh, caricatures or whatever that, that coalesce are, interestingly enough, um, simply lifted out um, whole cloth from, uh, from the attacks on the Jesuits earlier on. Um, I've got a book, a very good book called the a French book called uh, the Jesuit Myth in the 19th century, and um, the Jesuit, the attack on the Jesuit, and the caricature of the Jesuit, and even the picture of the Jesuit, 
is um, something which from the early 19th century was then attached almost whole cloth to that of the Jewish capitalist, to that of the Jewish capitalist. It's quite interesting, the book there. Um, now, you know, there are, um, there are certain forces which, 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 you know, are um, uh, Jewish in character and have an influence or Jew Jewish in, in background and have an influence in uh, the Catholic world in France and in Austria um, in the 19th century. And, and La Civiltà Cattolica does have a number of articles which, which focus on these people. And then what ends up happening is, of course, in reaction to uh, these um, these uh, these these uh, these elements, you have in the Jewish secular secularist naturalist world, anti-capitalist uh, elements that become supporters of and are active in from the very get-go with the name Marx itself, Jewish in background. So you get revolutionary Jewish forces that are attacking um, that are attacking um, Jewish capitalist forces that are more vehement than anything that you might find um, uh, in the pages of La Civiltà Cattolica, with Marx himself being at the head of the list. Mar Mar the list. Marx himself is, 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 is you know, hugely critical of what he considers to be a strong secularist, naturalist, Jewish element in the capitalist world that he's attacking. So, I mean, uh, in effect, I mean, yes, you can pick out stuff in La Civiltà Cattolica, um, but you can find the same things um, mentioned in the social democratic movement in which Jews are active in the 19th century um, and in Marx himself. So, you know, I, 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 I can't get all that excited about it. It's, it's there, certainly. It's there, certainly. Um, but it's not, it's not something which is um, at the heart of what it is that uh, a lot of the Catholic forces in general are talking about. In certain places, it becomes such. Um, in, in Austria um, and in France, there are times in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century where the, um, the attack of uh, anti-capitalist Catholic forces uh, does focus on, on uh, Jewish capitalists that are, that are, that are there in the, uh, in the picture, active in the picture. Uh, probably the most famous example of it in, the, um, in, in Austria is with the mayor of Vienna. Um, uh, the mayor of Vienna, who is a Christian social, who um, in a Vienna in which there's this massive migration of Jews coming in from the east, uh, becoming a politically um, uh, uh, very, very charged element that uh, all kinds of political forces can pick up on and try to make gain out of. Um, uh, the mayor of Vienna does play up on what he considers to be what he what he what he uh, he poses as being a Jewish threat, but which he utilizes, you know, quite frankly, for just simply political. Uh, uh, as a, as a as a hot potato issue that he can make headway out of, but he he he's very very friendly to Jews in practice, and in fact Jews um, in uh, the Habsburg Empire underneath his reign look upon him as a friend. 
So it's a, a tricky issue there that involves practical political politics, a practical political um, practical party politics, but I'm not really competent to be able to talk about that much. Um, in France, it plays a major role as well. So yes, I mean, there, 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 there is um, a, a, a Catholic um, uh, identification of Jewish capitalism and Jewish Marxism um, as being something which is dangerous, which nevertheless, Jewish capitalists also attack among Jewish Marxists and Jewish Marxists among Jewish capitalists, and which everybody, the Catholic um, political forces, Jewish capitalists, and Jewish Marxists um, find disturbing uh, because of the fact of this mass migration of Jews from outside of the Russian Empire. There's a great Jewish secularist writer who was very friendly to the Catholic Church called Karl Kraus in Austria, whose writings in his journal called Die Fackel, um, before and during and after the First World War, are filled with such vehement anti-Jewish uh, statements that the Nazis used them later on um, to his great dismay, to his great dismay. Um, it's, you know, it's one of these things like the word fascist now. I mean, everybody's a, everybody picks up on the word fascist. Everybody's a fascist. If you can get, get you know, pick up on the thing uh, easily enough, but everybody is banding about attacks on the Jews um, in the, uh, in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century. And it's, you know, it's, 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 it's nice as something to be able to pick up on, to beat people over the head with um, now, but I don't know whether I've, I've led, uh, led this off, off the path that you wanted it to go on, but it's, it's, it, it, you know, I, I just can't take it all that seriously. Excellent. Well, yeah, we, we don't have time to go into so many other things we can, um, but in the 19th century, there is this wave of Catholic revival. And as any closing thoughts you have, we've, we've just kind of talked a lot about the bad things happening. And uh, we're also in the midst of a revolution in the church, decades old, revolution in society. Um, any thoughts on the Catholic response to revolution? What is the Catholic response to revolution moving forward? Well, I mean, again, I'm glad you brought up the, 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 the Catholic revival there in the 19th century, because it seems to me that what that Catholic revival was all about is what Catholic revival always has to be about. And that is, first and foremost, as um, all of the, the, the people who were engaged in this revival recognize, is that the strength of the Catholic Church is Christ, is Christ. And that means... Um, and this is what the the the, the revival the, the reformers did. They recognized that the Catholic Church and Catholics in the 18th century had opted to you know talk about you know morality as the backbone of so social life and political life and uh, practical political practical social matters as though um, you could start out talking about things with those issues in mind, and you're only playing the, the naturalist game if you do so. 
The only way that you understand what nature is all about is by understanding the creator of nature. And the only way that we have been able to fully understand the creator of nature and get the grace to be able to live up to what the creator of nature wants is by means of um, understanding Jesus Christ, um, the uh, second person of the Trinity, incarnate, the word incarnate, um, and what the consequences of the incarnation are. And therefore, the whole, the only way the Catholic Church has any strength, the only way the Catholic Church can do its job in terms of drawing from this glory, glorious creation of God, everything that God wants to have drawn from it, for the proper perfection of individual personality is by keeping our eyes focused fully on Christ, on Christ, on Christ's teaching, on Christ's church, on the sacraments, on grace. Um, it's only by focusing on what St. Augustine calls the whole Christ, which is Christ in the mystical body of, of a mystical body of Christ, that we can do what our job is. We cannot, we, we do have a mission uh, to build the Catholic state, to build a Catholic social order, to build a Catholic culture as a whole. But you can't do that by focusing on politics first or on, on economics first. It's Christ first. It's Christ first. And to bring it down just um, um, given the fact that I am tied, I am the, the head of the, the, the Roman Forum, which was founded by Dietrich von Hildebrand, I, I, I do urge people to read von Hildebrand's books. And with respect to the importance of the mass um, and the liturgy, his book on liturgy and personality is, is hugely, hugely significant because what he does in liturgy and personality is he points out that the only way that you can have a proper liturgy and a proper liturgy that also plays a role, um, a, a, a central role in building up the, the, a true personality, a true Christian personality, is by recognizing that you have to focus on Christ. You have to focus on Christ's teaching, Christ's, um, Christ's grace, on worshiping God through the sacrifice of Christ. And only then can you have a liturgy which is going to develop and then have the proper tools to express what a liturgy must express um, used in the hierarchy of values in a way that's pleasing to God. Because if, if what you do is you turn around to focus on you and your needs, my needs as a man, my needs as a woman, my needs as a child, my needs as a, as a straight or a gay or a transgender person, um, or as an American, or as a Pole, or as a, um, a worker, or as a student, and then build a liturgy to worship God, with that being your primary focus, what you're going to do is, is you're, you're going to create, you're going to create a worship of yourself, you know, and your particular group, and, and not of God, not of God. Um, and it's the same with Ron Hildebrand's books on man and woman, and his book on the sacred heart. The way that the world is transformed is by transform and transformation in Christ. The way the world is transformed is by dropping, focusing on John Rao, and focusing on Christ, 
and then allowing Christ to create John Rao. You know, um, that's the only way that we can have any kind of Christian revival. And quite frankly, quite frankly, to paraphrase, I don't, I don't want to bring uh, uh, this person's name into the picture right now because I don't know if he wants me to do so. But um, quite, quite frankly, if, if all of the forces of the World Economic Forum and Davos um, and of, 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 of all of these many, many other elements that we are um, focusing right now are against us, and we have Christ as the only force that we have to operate, well, to paraphrase this guy, the odds are on our side, all right? The odds are on our side. Um, we're the ones who are going to win out, you know, but, but it has to be focused on Christ. Excellent. That's a perfect way to end this. Dr. Rao, thank you so much for all of your good work. Once again, take a look at his writings. There are linked below. Um, and let's uh, offer to offer up an Our Father for this intention, focusing on Christ, that we can, that the knowing that the odds are in our favor. I think a lot of people are despairing at this time, but taking what you're saying very seriously, taking the example of our fathers who faced bloody mobs before, we can also face what we're dealing with today. So let's offer this up and we'll close out. Name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.